Good afternoon. I hope everyone is doing well. Um, It's the Christmas season. It's the time of making lists, figuring out what toys we want, what toys we're going to give, what toys do our kids want, what toys are our kids going to get. And I was reminded this week of an illustration that C.S. Lewis gave in the early 1940s. Uh, It was a tumultuous time in Europe, and he was trying to explain the gospel to a secular culture, and he said, um, imagine you have a set of toys, like he, he used the example of 10 soldiers, or imagine whatever figurines you grew up with as a kid, maybe it was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, or Marvel, or He-Man, hey, okay, and he said, imagine you had a group of toys like this, what would it take for you to make those toys come alive? What would it take to make those toys come alive? And furthermore, what would they look like if they were to come alive? How cool would it be if our toys could be living, breathing, real? And he said, I don't know what I would do. I don't know what you would do, but I think I know what God would do. He said, I think God would actually come to earth as a toy. He would keep his toyness, he would be fully toy, but he'd be fully alive. He would be fully himself. He would have real hair color and real eye color and real skin and bones. He would speak a real language, live among real people at a real moment in history. And he said, I think the toy would live this full life. He would be a model of what it means to be alive amongst all the other toys, of course, who were not real. And he said, excuse me for stretching the metaphor a little bit, but he said, like, imagine if the other toys were threatened by how alive this toy was. And they were like, no, 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 we don't want that. That's a threat to our toyness, and they actually rejected him to the point of killing him. And then he said, I know this is crazy talk, but if this toy came fully to life, how could death snuff him out? So imagine that this toy came back to life, and it would be like um, an infection, that the, the life of this one toy would then spread to all the others. And he says, I know that's ridiculous, I know that's crazy, but he said, that's Christmas. That's the Christmas story that in fact, the Son of God became a man so that men might become sons of God. That at Christmas we celebrate that in order to spread the life of God into our world of dead people, he had to come himself. He had to live among us. And we've been looking at the Gospel of John. And if you remember last week, we were talking about how the the Gospel of John talks about Jesus coming. It's a little different. There are no wise men. There are no shepherds. There's no stable. There's no star of Bethlehem. What John does is he zooms out on the story. He's like, I want you to see the grandeur of Jesus. I want you to see how big, how cosmic the story of God really is. And 
this afternoon, we're going to look at this, a snippet of this first chapter of John that tells us how Jesus plans to spread his fullness, his life to us. Christmas is not just about God becoming man, him um, coming to life. It, it's about how he brings that into our story as well. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read John 1 again. It says this, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him. He cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This passage speaks to uh, a core part of our faith. What happens when we trust in Jesus? What, ha what happens when we surrender to him? The scriptures say that we come alive. The metaphor we see is that knowing Jesus is like experiencing a new birth. It's like waking up spiritually. And this is important for us this afternoon because there's probably several groups in the room. Maybe you're here and you've been exploring the claims of Jesus. Maybe you're asking questions. Maybe you're ready to take a first step of faith. And you're like, well, how do I do that? What does that even look like? Like what happens when I take that step of faith? Or maybe there's another group in the room and you would say, I actually... I think I have trusted in Jesus. I think I am trying to follow Jesus. But if Jesus is coming to give fullness of life, he's coming to give abundant life, I am not experiencing it. There's something wrong with me? Like, what's going on? If Jesus is offering abundant life, why am I not experiencing it? John's going to address that. And I want to ask three questions from this text this afternoon. What is the life that Jesus gives? What keeps us from experiencing that life? And third, how do we receive the fullness of life that Jesus gives? First, what is the life that Jesus gives? If you look in verse four, it says very simply, in him was life. 
and the life was the light of men. In the New Testament, there are two primary words that get translated into English as life. You have bios, which we can guess what that means. Bios means physical life, created life, where we get the word, obviously, biology. Not me. I was like, I think I could. Um, and then the second word is Zoe. Zoe refers to spiritual, eternal life. And there's also two words for death in the New Testament. You have a word that refers to physical death and a word that refers to spiritual death. And what we see in the scripture is that it's very possible for someone to be physically alive, but spiritually dead. And John tells us that Jesus is life. In him was life. It's not just that he has life. He is life. Eternal life, full life, abundant life. And out of his abundance, he gives life to us. And it's so easy for us to confuse the message of Jesus. And we, we think, well, maybe the gospel is about making bad people good. Or maybe it's about making lazy people productive. Maybe it's about making normal people super good religious people. But those aren't the categories that we see in the scriptures. The categories in the scripture is spiritual death and spiritual life that the gospel actually comes to make us fully alive in God. That's why Jesus spoke about it so often. He came to live the fullness of life and then give it to all who would receive it. Think about John 10.10, 10. it says this, I came, Jesus says, that they may have life and have it abundantly. In his own words, why did Jesus Christ come to the earth? To give us abundant life. John, again, in his letter, he says it this way. He says, this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. What is John saying? Listen, if you have Jesus, there's not a question whether you have life or not, because Jesus is life. If you have him, you have life. If you don't have him, you don't have life. If you're looking for abundant life, there's many places you could try to look, and we do. We can look at our job, we can look at our money, we can look at our family, we can look in the way that we look or appear or the approval of others. We can look at all these things for life, and John makes it very simple. simple. You'll never find it because it's in Jesus. Think about what, what the apostle Paul says. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Do you see Paul's logic? It's really interesting. He's saying, Think of the beautiful, glorious things that we received through Jesus' death. We have forgiveness of sin. We have been reconciled with God. Hallelujah. That's through his death. But he said, imagine if that's what we got from his death, what are we going to get from his life? 
The gospel, the story of salvation, the good news is not simply that Jesus forgives sin. He does, and it's amazing. But it's more than that. It's that he imparts new life. Dallas Willard, who is a well-known author on spiritual disciplines and discipleship, he said this, the simple and wholly adequate word for salvation in the New Testament is life. How do we explain all that Jesus is doing for us? How do we explain his grace and his love and his salvation? Dallas Willard says, you really can't find a better word than life. That when we were dead, Jesus wants to make us alive, fully alive. When we hear eternal life, so often we think of heaven, right? We think that it's something that will come after physical life is, is over. But when we look at the scriptures, when it talks about eternal life, it is something that we receive in the here and now. It's something that we experience here on earth and into eternity. C.S. Lewis, again, says it this way. A man who changed from having bios to having Zoe, would have gone through as big a change as a statue which changed from being a carved stone to being a real man. And that is precisely what Christianity is about. This world is a great sculpture shop. We are the statues and there's a rumor going around some of us are going to someday come to life. And you say, what does this actually look like? Like, how do we step into this life? How do we live this life? How do we receive this life? And when we look at what John says, look with me at verse 12 and 13. He says, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And this verse actually uses very similar language to... uh, John chapter three, which is a couple chapters later in the story of Nicodemus. Do you guys remember the story of Nicodemus? So Nicodemus was a religious man, a religious leader. He was a professional religious guy. Moral character through the roof, checked all the boxes. Um, He would have been a respected member of the community, but he notices Jesus' teaching. He notices Jesus' miracles, and he's intrigued. He has to know more, but he's a proper religious guy. He can't be seen going to meet with Jesus. So one night, under the cloak of darkness, Nicodemus approaches Jesus' place of residence, and he begins with some pleasantries some flattery. He says, Rabbi, Jesus, we know you are from God because no one teaches like you teach. No one performs the works that you do unless he's from God. And it's like Jesus stops him. And it says, Jesus answered him. But Nicodemus didn't ask a question. Jesus answers the question that Nicodemus should have asked. And Jesus says very simply, very bluntly this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is like, what? (laughs) I wasn't asking about 
I mean, I don't know what you're talking about. This is not the question that I was asking. I'm just trying to get to know who you are and check some things out. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. I am looking into your heart. I'm telling you what you need. I'm telling you the questions that you should be asking, but you're not asking. Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And in our modern American culture, the term born again comes with cultural baggage, right? We, we, we say, oh, you're like a born again Christian, which means something, right? It, it means uh, if somebody says that in the news, news, they're trying to imply something. But if we can strip the cultural baggage away and look at what Jesus means by it, there's something very powerful. Christianity is not about behavior modification. It's not about checking all the religious boxes. It is about life transformation. This is why adding a little bit of God to your life will likely make you miserable. It's why adding just a little bit of religious activity to your already busy schedule will likely crush you rather than help you. Because it's not about doing more. It's not about checking the boxes. It's about receiving new life. Last night, we were uh, having dinner with some friends from our kids' school. And they brought their kids over. We were having dinner. We were talking. And they were saying that they were doing Elf on the Shelf with their youngest daughter. Anybody familiar with Elf on the Shelf? And we were all laughing. We were like, this is really hilarious and really creepy. Like, here's the narrative of Elf on the Shelf. It's like, hey, here's this elf that we're going to hide around the house, but he's watching you. (laughs) He is watching you to see if your behavior is good or bad. And then he's going to apparently, like, somehow get that message to Santa and your presents are on the line. So you better be good because the elf is watching and the elf is going to report on you. And if you watch, we've been watching a lot of Christmas movies uh, this month. And if you watch Christmas movies with Santa, that's the message. Santa's doing all these miracles and he's doing like the magic Santa stuff. And then he looks at the kids, he's like, you better be good. And I think often what we can do is we just translate that message into the church. And like we, we think God is like that. We think, we say maybe in our own heads, like God is watching. Better be good for goodness sake. Better be good. You better not find yourself on the naughty list. You better do better, better than you did last year. Are you sure that you're doing good enough? Are you doing enough? God's watching. And we think, well, yeah, I mean, that's true. God is all seeing. God is all knowing. God, God is watching. And we think, yeah, I guess I better do more, be better. But that's not the message of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus is very different than the gospel of Santa. Jesus looks at Nicodemus, a guy who for sure would have been on the nice list. And he says, Nicodemus, you've missed the entire point. You've been very good. Congratulations. You did all the things. 
You checked all the boxes. You gave all the money. You did all the prayers. You showed up when you're supposed to show up. Way to go, Nicodemus. But you missed the point entirely. You have to receive the new life of God. You have to be born again. The life I have for you, Nicodemus, is not a life that you can earn. You can only receive it through faith. And that's what he's saying to us today. When we come alive in God, several things happen. We first receive a new heart. You begin to see that your character is changing. You love things that you didn't love. People don't have to force you, like, hey, man, you got to be in church. You got to do this. You got to do that. You're like, I legitimately want to do those things. I, I, I don't know what was happening. At one point, I hated God. Wanted nothing to do with him. Now I love God. I used to hate all these people, too. And now it's weird. I like them. I love them. I used to want to spend all my time on myself, and I still wrestle with that, but now I legitimately like to serve. And you're like, what happened? Like, I, I came alive. I got a new heart. And not only has he given us a new heart, but it begins a process of transformation. So the life of Jesus, the perfect life, is our aim and our destination. And God is transforming us every single day to look more like him. And even more than that, not only does he give us a new heart, not only is he transforming us to make us like Jesus, but he's also filled us and occupied us with the very Holy Spirit of God. So you're like, hey, are you facing an obstacle, a trial, a temptation? Is that you? I'm right there with you. I filled you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I will walk with you. I will empower you to do all the things that I've called you to do because you are a new person. You are alive. And you say, okay, that sounds good. But if Jesus offers that kind of life, Second question, what keeps us from experiencing the life of Jesus? You're like, if that's what Jesus really is trying to offer me, if Jesus really wants a full life, really wants an abundant life, that's what he's offering, why am I not experiencing it? Notice with me what he says. Verse 11, he came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, notice this, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And here's the analysis that John is giving. It's really interesting. He says, listen, Jesus came to his crew, his tribe, his people, his family, and his own crew rejected him. Why? Why would you reject an offer of eternal life? Here's abundant life, man. It's free. No thanks. John gives us some hints in this verse. He says, when you experience the new life, it's not of blood, he says. It's not about your background. It's not about your family. It's not about your ethnicity. It's not about your race. He goes on to say, it's not the will of the flesh, meaning it's not about your sincerity. It's not about you being genuine. Then he says, it's not the will of man. It's not your effort. It's not about doing a lot, achieving a lot, checking all the boxes. These are all forms of self-sufficiency. This attitude that says, I got it covered. 
because of my family background, because of my ethnicity, my performance, my effort, my good works, my good intentions. If there was anybody that was gonna live and experience eternal life, it's gonna be me because have you seen me? I got all the stuff. I've done all the things. But all of these achievements were the very things that caused them to miss the life of Jesus. All they needed was need, but they couldn't acknowledge it. All they needed was nothing, and it was the one thing that they did not have. All they needed was to cry out for help, but that's the, that's the one thing they would never do. About a year before he died, Matthew Perry wrote an autobiography. We know Matthew Perry from his role on Friends. He was Chandler, but he also was very um, well known for having a, a public addiction, right? He, was, he had an addiction that was lived out um, in the news and in the media, and he struggled with it for years and years. Um, in his autobiography, he talks about uh, his life with God and the wrestles that he had with God in the midst of addiction. It gets really vulnerable. And here's what he says. He says, God, please help me, I whispered. Show me that you're here. God, please help me. And I started to cry. I mean, I really started to cry. That shoulder shaking, kind of uncontrollable weeping. I wasn't crying because I was sad. I was crying because for the first time in my life, I felt okay. I felt safe, taken care of. Decades of struggling with God and wrestling with life and sadness, all was being washed away, like a river of pain gone into oblivion. I had been in the presence of God. I was certain of it. And this time I prayed for the right thing, help. God had shown me a sliver of what life could be. He saved me that day and for all days, no matter what. He had turned me into a seeker, not only of sobriety and truth, but also of him. That's powerful. It's like I've been in, in the presence of God. I'd wrestled with God for years over my addiction, and I finally figured out the right thing to say to him. Maybe it was the one thing that I never was willing to admit. Help. Help. I don't have anything to give. I don't have anything to offer. I'm bringing my honest self before you, the real me, with all of my hurt and pain and sin and brokenness and addiction. And I'm just saying, God, here I am in all of it. Help. And this was the right place to start, and it's the right place for us to start, and it's why we often miss the life of Jesus, because we aren't willing to come to a place of brokenness and receive it. We're still holding on to the other things that we think will give us life. We want to add to Jesus. Yes, I, I want Jesus, but I also really need this amount of money, this type of relationship, this type of family, this type of apartment, this type of approval, this type of comfort. God, that's the light. That's what's going to bring me life, God. And we never get to the point where we say, no, no, no. I'm willing to forsake all of it. I'm willing to come empty-handed and say, help. I need you. These become the cracks where God's light breaks through. 
See, the enemy of faith is not doubt. The enemy of faith is self-sufficiency. This posture that says, I got it covered. I can handle it. Who needs God? I got this. But when we allow God into our brokenness, when we actually show him the real us and the real pain and the real sin and the real cracks, that is when we experience his new life, his restoration, his healing. I think about the story of the apostle Peter. The apostle Peter, as you know, was one of the primary leaders in the early church. He was like the man in the first church. But do we remember how his story started? On the night that Jesus was crucified, he gathered his disciples together and he was telling them about what was coming. And he was like, hey, just so you know, I'm going to the cross, here's what's what's gonna go down, and by the way, all of you are gonna scatter and forsake me. Peter stands up, he said, not me. All these other chumps, they might. I've seen those guys. They might forsake you, not me. I would die for you, Jesus. I would go all the way with you. I am your guy, Jesus. You can rely on me. Later that night, Jesus is arrested, and Peter is, is kind of hanging on the fringes, and he's warming himself by a charcoal fire, and somebody comes to him and says, Peter, um, you, you gotta be with Jesus, Like, you're one of his, right? No, 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 no. Don't know the guy. Later on, uh, somebody else comes to him and says, Peter, you got to, you you got an accent. You have to be one of Jesus's. And he said, no. And then a third time, same question. And Peter once again denies that he ever knew Christ. And at that moment, the rooster crows. Peter remembers the words of Jesus. And the text tells us he wept bitterly. Now, fast forward with me. Jesus dies, Jesus is raised from the dead, Jesus appears to Peter, he appears to his disciples, he appears to many. And Peter has got to be feeling lots of different things. He had just been embarrassed, he had just failed on a major scale, so he decides he's gonna go back to fishing. He said, maybe that's the thing that I can do. That's what I'm good at, that's what I've been trained in. I'll go fish. He goes to fish, and he's not having a good fishing day, but he sees Jesus on the shore. Jesus has a charcoal fire, and he invites Peter to a meal. And if we read the text, we see several incredible points. First, the charcoal fire. Jesus invites Peter to the very same environment where he failed him. Probably the smells of the fire probably reminded him of his sin, reminded him of his failure, reminded him of his embarrassment. But Jesus had to bring Peter back there to the place where he had fallen because not to shame him, not to send him away, but to heal him. Peter, we can't, we can't just throw this under the rug. Peter, we got to go there to that place of brokenness and pain. So not only is there a charcoal fire, but it's a meal. And if you look in the New Testament uh, especially, meals were places of friendship and relationship. And Jesus was inviting Peter 
to be restored, to be back into a relationship. And three times he asked Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And it feels like when you're reading it that he's trying to stab Peter in the back, like twist the knife. Don't you remember, Peter, when you failed me? Do you love me? Do you really love me? Do you love me more than these? But Peter, but Jesus is not trying to shame Peter. He's trying to restore Peter. He's trying to get Peter to come to that place of brokenness, that place of need, and receive the healing of Jesus, the restoration of Jesus, because he says, Peter, you're, you're not finished. I have a plan for you. I have a new vocation for you. I have a calling for you. Peter, I need you back in the game, so I need you to let the cracks show in this moment because this is where the light is gonna come in. This is where the real life is gonna enter. I don't need you out in the boat hiding in shame. I need you in the game. So Peter, are you willing to come to this place of brokenness and need and say, here I am, help. And Peter, of course, receives that invitation, and he's restored. The third question we need to ask is how do we receive the fullness of life that Jesus gives? How do we receive it? How do we walk in, walk in it? I want it. What, what are these next steps? Well, there's two parts. First is we receive the gift, and then we grow into it. Receive the gift and grow into it. How many of you earned your birth? Anybody? How many of you achieved your birth? No one. That's why the metaphor is so powerful. Being born, becoming a child is a gift that comes from others. The same is true about becoming a child of God. It is a gift that we receive. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. You can't pray your way into it. You just have to receive it. We open our hands and we say, God, here I am. I'm ready. God, I want to follow you. God, I want to turn from all the things that I've been finding life in that have failed me. And I want to find life in you. I believe that you have done everything for me. I believe in what you've done. I believe that you died for me. I believe that you rose from the dead. And here I am. I receive you into my life with open hands. We receive it as a gift. But it doesn't stop there. We have to grow into it. Again, I love the way Dallas Willard says it. He says, being a disciple means that I am learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life if he were me. I'm not necessarily learning to do everything he did, but I'm learning how to do everything I do in the manner that he did all that he did. And what I love there is he talks about learning. It's not like, hey, um, I've received the gift of grace, the gift of love, the gift of salvation, and got it all figured out, man. Everything fits perfect. I'm, I'm treating my coworkers, nailing it. My, my marriage, my parenting, my church, I, I got it all. No, we receive the gift, then we grow into it. Imagine, I picture my, my uh, six-year-old son, he's about yay high. Imagine him wearing one of my dress shirts, probably come down below his knees. He would be considered fully clothed, right? Fully covered. But it certainly doesn't fit. He would have to grow into that type of shirt. And one day he will. One day 
if he were to keep that shirt, it would feel natural, it would look normal. The same is true with our life in Christ. When we first trust in him, we are fully clothed in him, in his new life, in his righteousness, in his grace, in his love, in his spirit. We are clothed. We can't be more clothed than the way Jesus clothes you when he saved you. But you have to grow into it. You don't strive to earn the clothes. They're already yours. You strive to grow into the clothes you already have. You are living the life that is already yours in Christ. That's the Christian story. You become, in practice, what Christ has already declared you to be in truth. And you're like, this life, I'm, like, I, 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 I'm not experiencing the life. I don't have the life. One of two things is happening. Maybe you've never received it. Maybe you've, had, you've played the religious game, you've done church stuff, you've been around church people, you've even been around the scriptures and about Bible study, you've been around it, but you've never received it. Or maybe you have received it, but you're not committed to growing up into it. Like you've received it, but actually your pursuits are not to grow into that life, your pursuits have been to find life elsewhere. I've been thinking this week about Charles Wesley because he wrote so many of the beautiful Christmas hymns that we sing. Charles Wesley was a very religious guy. In fact, he was a missionary. I mean, he was, he was the, the star student in the religious academy of the day. But he didn't actually know Christ until one day he actually figured out what it meant to receive Christ the gospel as a gift of grace. And he wrote these words. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Later, Wesley would write this that we sing at Christmas. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have come to give us new life. And this Christmas, when we are burdened, when we are busy, God, we don't want to miss the life that you have for us. We don't want to settle for a lesser life when you are giving us abundant life. We don't want to miss it. So God, today, would we receive it? God, today, would we be committed to growing up into it? Today, would we be committed to forsaking all the other areas where we have thought would give us life, and would we run to you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.